I'm now on the hook and have Naval support and have all these people excited about it. And so there's like instant scope creep, right? And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to make this like Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is one of my favorite books. And part of the inspiration for this is like, I'm going to compile everything helpful he's ever said or shared. And it's going to be enormous. And so I started gathering all the source material and stuff. And it was very quickly like, oh, this is not going to be a three month project. Like I'm going to be at this for a really long time. But with kind of Naval's support and the validation, I, I shifted kind of from oh, I'll run this as an experiment to like, I'm confident this will be a success if I can make it great. So I will focus on making it great over any time scale that that takes. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. Before I get into what we're gonna talk about today, I have something that I'd like to ask of you. If you can go on to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating, it would mean a lot to me. Reviews and ratings help the Apple algorithm and make this podcast more visible to the world. And so if this is a podcast that's given you value while you've been listening and you feel gracious enough to leave me a review, this guy would appreciate it. I'm pumped to have my friend Eric Jorgensen with me today, who is the author of The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. He's also creating online courses. His most recent is on leverage. And we have just an amazing conversation today about what it's like to write a book. We talk about Naval himself, how he got Tim Ferriss to write the foreword. Uh, on the leverage side, we talk about what leverage is, what the course teaches, but really like how to create a course and best practices. And then we have a really cool discussion about uh, how leverage might be used in a world where folks online go anonymous or pseudonymous, which I mispronounce every single time I say it in the episode, but I'll let you be the judge. Thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Eric, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. I have to ask, it's Jorgensen. In in Europe, you'd probably be right. In America, it's Jorgensen, Perfect. at least for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's just start out with a little bit about kind of who you are and where you came from and what you've been up to. Yeah, I grew up in, just outside Detroit in Michigan. Grew up in kind of a small business family, which I feel incredibly fortunate to have done because to me, kind of being a business owner and entrepreneur was like a normal career path, not some strange mystical thing. And right after college, I kind of just left college somewhat in the middle um, and moved to Kansas City and very quickly thereafter San Francisco uh, to join the startup world and just got done with like a 10-year tour of duty at a tech company during which I had a bunch of random side projects and tweeted a lot. And uh, <laughs> that's probably <laughs> how we got where we are today. Yep. Twitter's brought us all here. What side projects were you working on? Uh, so I had a, a blog called Evergreen for a little while, which is ended up being kind of my self-administered MBA. And then I just published a book called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant like nine months ago, uh, as of now. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But before we do that, you, you've, you've been posting a tweet every single day that says, if you could complete one thing today, what would it be? What are you, what are you riffing on there? I'm trying to get myself for sure back into this discipline of focus 
And so going from like this very structured kind of workplace to I kind of have this infinite set of opportunities of what to work on every day, which is like this huge blessing, but also requires kind of this new, like quick reorientation and refocus discipline. And it it really is kind of interesting to like make this to-do list of 10 things that feels totally achievable, but then force yourself to reprioritize and reprioritize. And sometimes that one thing that you have to get done that day only takes 10 minutes, but it is the most important thing to like kick the right ball in the right direction and like get that thing moving. And then everything feels like bonus. Uh, and sometimes it's a big, hairy thing that you're going to spend all day doing and you're going to have to ignore your inbox and ignore like all this other stuff that's going on or just sometimes just like not show up to meetings that you're supposed to show up to and hopefully notify people. But like if you get that one thing done, it was a big win for that day. And just trying to be really disciplined about putting myself through that over and over and over again and doing it publicly like helps me and hopefully helps some other people, you know, fi- find the high leverage work, find the right stuff to be working on and just not let a day get wasted, you know, from, from any perspective, a lot of people reply to that and say like a nap or be a great father or like whatever thing they're kind of working on or focused on that day. I applaud all that. Um, it starts a lot of interesting conversations. How do you go through that process? Do you do it in the morning? Do you have a journal? Do you just kind of sit there and think, how do you go through that? I use Notion. It's really the only thing I like reliably use Notion for. And actually my buddy, Andrew Farah, who you have recently had on this podcast, and you guys mostly talked about real estate and his brilliant company. And, but he is also like quite smart about, I don't know, he gets a lot done. So he's very smart about these productivity systems. And he sent me a little recording of this like Notion daily template that he uses. And I just adopted that immediately. Um, and so I have like this triage of kind of like schedule important stuff and then spillover and, and just like reprioritize. And so then I can go through and on like the monthly scale, I use ultra working. Um, I don't know if you've ever read any of like the Sebastian Marshall's work or followed his stuff, but he's got a really helpful kind of like monthly prioritization. And then I use this daily thing within that and just kind of go back and forth between like monthly goals, daily work, and then use that daily schedule to reorient for the next month. Like what got done, what still needs to happen. It's, it was cobbled together, but it is kind of like smooth edges now and it's starting to feel pretty pretty smooth one of the things I've, I've i've never struggled with the most important thing of the day the thing i've struggled at times with is i set the monthly goal and then like a week into it it's either done or it's shifted like do you stay pretty strict to what you set for the month and just kind of like stay bl- blinders on and like that's the goal or do you leave it kind of open for interpretation i usually like this month there's probably 12 things in like three or four different categories, you know, that's life and work and different projects. There's usually like one or two of those that are really big, meaty, like heavy lift as far as time goes. And I really focus on those and being sure that I start those early and get them all done. And then kind of let the other pieces kind of fit in. And I almost never get every little piece, but if I get those two big ones and half of the other little pieces, like that's a pretty good month. I don't know. Do you only do one? No, I do. Okay. I do quite a few. We use the OKR method at Fort Capital for setting kind of goals. Um, And then I use OmniFocus for a lot more of kind of the tasks and the daily and kind of weekly stuff. But no, I usually have three or four kind of big things each month that I'm working on. Or sometimes they're six-month goals. A lot of the stuff I work on is not done in a week or a month. And that's where it can get distracting. Like the longer the goal is out there, I don't know. You could go to dinner and somebody tells you something. You're like, shit, maybe I shouldn't be working on this goal. Like maybe it should be this goal. So yeah, I, 
I have a hard time with some of those that have been there for three months and like keep rolling over. But it's also sometimes it's just a mismatch of expectations. Like if you had told yourself this was going to take a quarter or a year and didn't ever expect it to take a month, you know, would you be beating yourself up about it? So I think that's a good like we're going to have to go through this again. Like now I know that this takes six months and not one and that's okay. <laughs> still worth doing. <laughs> Hopefully it's still worth doing. All right. Well, one of the big goals that you had was the the Naval Manac or the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. So let's just first thing, like how did this even come to be and how did this start? Yeah. I mean, this started totally by accident. Um, I, I had like a kernel of an idea that I tweeted with a very um, sort of a... <laughs> It was a, I was sheepish about it. I was just like, if I wrote the book of knowledge, like, do you want this? And didn't think much about it. Obviously, um, it's a very quick pun. Naval re- retweeted it while I was asleep and woke up to find like 5,000 5, people replied and like wanted this book to exist. And so it quickly went from me thinking this would be a small three month project to like, oh God, like I'm now on the hook and have Naval support and have all these people excited about it. And so there's like instant scope creep, right? And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to make this like poor Charlie's Almanac, which is one of my favorite books. And part of the inspiration for this is like, I'm going to compile everything helpful he's ever said or shared. And it's going to be enormous. And so I started gathering all the source material and stuff. And it was very quickly like, oh, this is not going to be a three month project. Like I'm going to be at this for a really long time. But with kind of Naval's support and the validation, I, I shifted kind of from oh, I'll run this as an experiment to like, I'm confident this will be a success if I can make it great. So I will focus on making it great over any time scale that that takes. So you send this tweet out kind of like, you know, just kind of, I wouldn't say bored, but you just fire this thing out and, and it changed your life. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Isn't Possibly. that weird? It, yeah, it's super weird. I mean, I guess you send like 10,000 tweets, one of them, <laughs> one of them's bound to. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's... uh it was a very strange like path that forked that day for sure. Yep. Okay. So you send it, you go to bed, he retweets it. Then, then kind of what happens? Did did you kind of send him a DM that you're like, all right, I'm really going to do this. Or how did it go from, okay, this is picking steam to I'm, I'm in and Naval knows it and he's going to be in too. Yeah. I mean, he, he replied with like relatively quickly with like happy to help provide you all, you know, the resources that you need, old tweets, whatever. And we, I mean, we sent a few DMs just kind of like talking about what this thing was going to be um, and what he wanted it to be. It was very important to him that like a free version was available for everybody. It was important to him that it was clear that he was not earning money from it because some of the, the what he says in the book would, would be hypocritical if he did. And that was, that was pretty much it. Like, and then he was just kind of like, all right, go. Um, and I would kind of check in and just be like, Hey, here's progress. Here's, here's what I'm working on. Here's what I'm thinking. Uh, but it was all through, you know, email and DMs. There was no special access. There was no anything, and just built out of all of the publicly available like raw materials that I could find that that he had ever written or shared or interviews that he'd done, podcasts, tweets. So, how did you kind of break out what like what all was going to go into it, and what was important and what wasn't? Like when I'm thinking about pulling information, we just talked about goal setting. There can be a lot that feels important. Like, how did you know what was going to be good and what wasn't? Yeah, it's. This is a very, very interesting process. Um, and, and like, I enjoyed a lot of it. It was hard to invent the process while I did it. So the hard part was like figuring out if I was working on the right thing. So I think like your your question is exactly right. I, I started just like, I gathered all the sources that I could find and and just kind of listed them all out. And that was almost a hundred sources. And my, my napkin math is kind of like 
this is well over a million words of source material. I started with the, the tweets as, because I thought it was a good like representation of all of the content. So I didn't have to index all of it in order to start organizing and kind of creating buckets. So I started with the tweets, did like a one zero quality filter, and then did like categorization. And that became my first table of contents and like my first buckets. Um, and then I went through all of the kind of long form pros and found like puzzle pieces and started kind of like putting them in these buckets and, and sorting them. And really like most of the work is this huge, like conceptual jigsaw puzzle. And so you have like a million puzzle pieces in front of you. And some of them are the exact same idea, just phrased differently. And you've got to like find the very best version of that idea and then find what other thing it connects to. And there's an editing process along the way. So you're kind of like, well, this is a great idea and it connects to this other great idea, but do these ideas belong attached to this idea? Do they belong in this bucket or this bucket? And so when you're, you know, the final book is 50,000 words, maybe give or take. And so there's 900,000 plus words like on the cutting room floor that weren't the perfect version of that idea or didn't fit into the single thread of ideas or repetitive or outdated or, um, you know, not kind of a permanent, like evergreen enough idea to be, to fit into this book. And yeah, it's a very, very, very interesting process. I spent a lot of time just like marinating in this idea and listening to the same things over and over again and figuring out how they fit together and which, you know, this story actually complements this like sort of proposition. And they're all summarized in this tweet that came three years later. And when you're looking at all of this, I mean, this is probably 10 years of his public thoughts. And so you can see things evolve and synthesize and kind of get shorter and shorter. And then as you flip through the book, you can kind of, you see an idea as a chapter heading, and then you see the tweet that's like the summarizing aphorism in, in kind of big text. And then you can read the prose around it to find the story or the explanation or the detail around the thought that explains that sort of aphorism that represents the idea. So, and I hope people can use it as kind of a, a reference and that if the line of thought is clear enough, it's it's easy to read and um, pulls you from idea to idea, and those ideas like stick in your head for later. Like that, that would feel like a huge win to me. I have a lot of questions there, but the first is just very basic. What's a one zero quality filter? Is that just I like it, I don't, and that's a that's yeah, your yeah. judgment? Yeah, yeah, just like in or out. And the thing that I didn't like, my first quality filter was very was generous. I like, I was so interested in so many of the things, you know, there's a lot of stuff that he talks about. There's like, whole sections that I had to post on the website because they didn't fit into the final book, but you know, he's got a lot of, um, predictions from 10 years ago that are really interesting or thoughts about education that were really interesting to me, but not, you know, necessarily like fit into a book designed for the general public. So, you know, it was, it was a, it was a generous quality filter of just like, what's an interesting thought. And, you know, Twitter, there's a lot of noise on Twitter. Like, half of probably more than half of my tweets are just me like replying to friends with gifts and like saying dumb stuff and sharing photos of sandwiches. So like <laughs> that's uh you know, there's no, there's no, like no timeless wisdom there. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of just like cleanup and, and sorting to do at first. Okay. So you, you created these buckets and you know, not trying to ask a super loaded question, but how many times did the buckets, like, how did you know, like, these are my buckets and I'm sticking to these buckets. Oh, I didn't stick to the buckets. They changed. They changed a lot. Um, yeah, they, they merged. They some of them just disappeared, and that's part of the kind of. I think that's part of the creative process. Like at first, there was an investing, and then that got split into like public market and angel investing and cryptocurrency investing. Like those are all ended up being like very different topics. Um, and then there's you know 
finding an idea versus starting a company versus managing a team. Like at first those were all tagged startups and then they kind of get broken up. And, um, and sometimes those ideas lead into each other and fit under one section or chapter heading. But it was, it was hard to like make up the rules and then follow the rules and then change the rules and like know that you're causing yourself more work. Um, so it was a very iterative game. Like I'd kind of come up with a process to do and I'd get two thirds of the way through. And then by the time I was finishing, I realized like this wasn't quite the process that I was hoping it would be. It wasn't a full solution to what I was hoping it would be. And so you like find a new way to tweak it and then go back to the beginning. I don't know. It was, it was probably messy to watch and it felt messy to go through. And that's partly like why it took so long. Um, it's like inventing this problem. I was at this for probably three years, inventing the process as I was going. And, but it, it was still, you know, it never felt there were hard days and discouraging moments, but like, it wasn't, um, didn't feel like hard work. I was always excited to be reading or rereading these ideas. I thought it was beneficial to me personally to always be kind of be like, you know, refreshing myself on them. And I feel like by the end of this project, like I built a little, like, Naval who sits on my shoulder and like, I've got a pretty a deep mental model of him now to the point where I can like ask questions of this little like Naval that's informed by all this time I've spent with this content and, you know, have a little bit of a conversation with, you know, wh what he would think about a decision or a question or a proposal. That's incredible. Did, did, did somebody, you, you kind of just said, you kind of made it up as you go. So you didn't follow some playbook. Nobody taught you how to, to do this, like first run through, you were just kind of figuring it out as you go. No, I mean, you know, I've done a lot of writing and a lot of curating, but I've never, certainly never anything quite like this. And I've never built a book before. So I didn't know what that finish line really looked like either. Um, and, and Scribe Media, who helped me, just helped, they're like professional self-publishers, uh, is kind of how I put it. Like not a publishing company, but they help authors publish their work professionally. Really helped me understand kind of where exactly that finish line was. And like, you know, here's how you're, all your sources and citations need to look and here you need this page and you're missing this whole section. I was like, Oh, oh, oh okay. 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 <laughs> I mean, I just built this whole thing in Google docs. I was like, I don't know, this looks mostly like a book. So like, maybe I should talk to somebody who can help me close the gap here. Um, so that was kind of the last going the last couple miles with them was really helpful. When I think about doing a project like that, the thing that scares me the most is, is knowing when I'm done. Like, it seems like something you could almost work on forever. And, and now that you've published it, you probably look back and go, I would have done maybe this page different or, you know, maybe there's something you've caught. When do you know you're done? Uh, yeah, you, you don't. Um, and that is definitely one of the hard things I kept, I kept thinking that I was done and then I would like sleep on it for a week and then I'd come back and be like, not even close. <laughs> like, I know I can make this better. I know I can make this better. What, what kind of changed is maybe I, I kept coming back to it and thinking the first few years I kept, or the first year or two, I came back and was like, this is worse than I remember. I, I was like working on it. I was like, this is great. This is awesome. And then I'd pick it up after like a week on the shelf and be like, this is not what I hoped it would be when I see it with fresh eyes. Um, and when I started to pick it up and say like, oh, this is better than I remembered it. And I, I mean, I had feedback from peer readers that I gave kind of early rough copies to that helped a lot. And having scribe, frankly, like push me on that. And so they said like, let's set a deadline, let's set a publish date. And once you go into page layout, you can't go back. So like, there's like a, a threshold in a Rubicon is like, okay, once you go past this point, like you cannot change a word in this book. Do you agree? Do you sign? Do you like, you can't go back. Um, so, okay. That's, that's a really helpful to kind of like have those state gates that you go through. Cause you're kind of like, okay, like I have to be done at some point and, and someone else is pushing you on it too. But yeah, it, it, especially 
when the quality really matters to you and the craftsmanship matters and, and you don't have, you have to choose to adopt a deadline and know that like once, you know, it looks a little unique to a company or a software or a course or anything like that. And they're like, once it's published, it's very, very hard to change. So you gotta, you gotta believe and, and commit. One question before I ask, well, I'll just ask this one first. So did Naval read it and give you the thumbs up before you publish it? Or he's just kind of like, look, this is your thing and send it to me when you're done. Yeah, he, he kind of like delegated and trusted to a pretty surprising degree. I, like I kind of expected him to go like line by line and be careful. And he just, he's by the end, he's just like, no, I, you checked in, like, looks good to me. Go for it. Uh, so, he, you know, there was no like, final super careful pass or anything like that I, I like to think i had generated some trust like and credibility after a few years of this by then and, and being really transparent about you know what i had sent and showing the process and all that stuff so yeah it, it was it was very like it was it, it kind of empowering that way i guess how did you get Tim Ferriss to write the forward because in the forward he specifically states i do not write forwards yeah, I, I feel for him. I'm sure he's received like many, many hundreds of requests for forwards. Uh, <laughs> and I, th so I think the, the biggest thing is just that Naval and Tim are friends and have been for a long time. And Tim also says in that forward, like I've wanted this to exist for a long time. Um, I think it's also important that this, this is not like a traditional book by, I don't know, by anybody, right? Like, there's a public service. The book's available for free. All the digital versions are available for free. The audio book is available for free on, on my podcast channel. So it's, it's very like, like it's a internet book kind of quote unquote. And so I think it was a, it was a one, they have a close relationship and two, like it's not really a normal forward of somebody like for a typical book. So I think that was, that was his loophole. I, I was over the moon when I found out, I couldn't believe that that happened. I was just, it was a very much a case of like, I mean, that's plan A plus plus plus. And like, there's no reason not to shoot for it. So like, let's give it a shot. I am still think it's kind of surreal that it worked out, but I'm deeply appreciative to Naval and Tim for kind of the, the inherent compliment in that. All right, here is a loaded question. And I've, and I've read, <laughs> I've, I've listened. I appreciate the, I appreciate the warning. <laughs> Well, no, I, I've read, I've listened to the podcast. I've read, I'm a, I love following him. But the one thing I still haven't quite answered is how did Naval become Naval? Like, how did he become this Charlie Munger of our kind of day and age? Was it a moment or did he write something that like changed his life? Like, how did he become this figure? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm sure. And actually, now that you ask, I'm not sure if I know how Munger became Munger. Um, uh, and it's probably a similar answer, which is like, you know, kind of brick by brick, a lot of things that people found helpful and interesting and reflective, and then saw that there's sort of results that are, that are commensurate with the recommendations or the the wisdom. So, I mean, Naval's been on Twitter for probably more than 10 years by now and given a lot of talks and interviews and he's built multiple successful companies and he's just willing to share with a level of candidness and sort of um, directness that I think some people aren't. And so it's that kind of, you know, the same respect that I have for Munger. That's just like, you're clearly a practitioner and then you have thought about your practice and then you've thought about thinking about your practice and you're willing to share what is probably your secret sauce with 
all of us like quite generously. And I don't I, you know, I was, I've been a monger follower for a long time. And to me, like Naval kind of carries some of that, but with the tech bent that I also grew up with. Um, and so it's a very interesting, like I can learn from you, not just about what you do, but also about thinking and about, you know, the future and your visions and all of these other things. And, you know, the, the polymath approach appeals to me. Like I, you know, Munger's a great investor, but I also love hearing what he thinks about architecture because it's sort of unique and controversial and like, it's just always a fresh, interesting thought. And, uh, there are probably the few inflection points. I mean, Naval's podcast with Shane Parrish was, was super popular. I think it's one of Shane's all time biggest downloads. And even years before that, Naval did a great interview early on the Tim Ferriss show. Um, and then when he was on Rogan, those are probably the three biggest like podcasts that were all a few years apart. I mean, his tweet storm about how to get rich without getting lucky was, uh, if there's a scoreboard of, of tweet storms, like that's gotta be way up there, you know? And, and he's been very sort of respected in the Valley for all of the investment track record that he's built. And, and AngelList is this sort of incredible platform. And then he was early in calling crypto too. So kind of wherever, um, there's people who have found their way to him from a number of different interests, I think. Um, and then kind of like see another thing that they're interested in is like, you know, I might've followed him originally for his thoughts on crypto, but now all of a sudden, like he's tweeting stuff about like Eastern philosophies and how to find happiness. And you're like, Oh, uh, that's pretty cool too. Like, I wonder what else he's got. Oh, like that's the future of education. Like, Oh, that's interesting too. I don't know. That's, it keeps things fun and, um, matches my personal ADD patterns of (laughs) being interested in too many things at the same time. Yep. How, how did you get into, like, you're a big fan of Munger. Obviously, you dedicated three years of your life to writing this cool book. Like, how did you get interested in these figures? Were, were you, have you always been this way since you were a kid? Or uh, how did this become your thing? Yeah, I, I mean, pretty early. I think, like, again, just lucky to kind of be in a family that, you know, we were talking about Buffett at the dinner table. And um, I picked up Poor Charlie's Almanac off my dad's bookshelf when I was, 20 probably and that was like just felt like i saw through the matrix of the universe and was like oh this is how so many things work um <laughs> and that informed many years of like you know then i kind of went into like oh i'll go read all the stuff that munger told me to read so like go read benjamin franklin's biography go read you know influence by cialdini go read like the munger recommended reading list um and then meeting the people who also had that worldview right like brent b shore and shane Parrish and the other people who were sort of inspired by Munger, like that's been maybe even more influential than what I've learned directly from him. So I, and I think, you know, I was very lucky to have found Portugal's Almanac when I was 20. I hope, you know, my, my favorite thing is getting notes from people who are like, I gave this book to my little brother and it blew his mind. And like, you know, seeing that carry, carry forward and compound for the next generation is, is super rewarding too. The Almanac is the Charlie Munger Almanac, but I, I, Naval's is not too far behind is the only book that consistently sits on a table in my office and it's it's meant the world to me I've learned a ton for it from it I thought a fun question might be if if they were both here on the podcast with us and and God knows they're going to be listening to this so they'll they'll get a chance (laughs) and you asked each of them what do you think about what's going on in the world right now from everything that all the experience you have, how would they each answer that question? I think I know the answer. Uh, we got to watch the the annual meeting recently, but if you said right now at this moment, is the world doing well? Is it about to be terrible? How would they each answer it? 
Do you, do you want to do Munger and I'll do Naval and we'll and we'll see if we who we I'll come do. Up I'll, with. I get the easy one. I think Munger would just say, you know, this is crazy. He obviously hates crypto. He's he's not a huge fan of technology in general. Maybe he just doesn't understand it. He thinks that people are greedy and that a lot of what's going on is kind of nonsense and folly. And I would just say he would look at America right now and say we are not in, in uh, we're not headed in the right direction. Interesting. I think like I would hope that he, yeah, he might say like we're we're due for some pain. Like we've we've overeaten. We've been a little we've been a little greedy, and we're due for like I think he's he's probably long term bullish. Like in the same way 100%. that Buffett was last year, but like yeah, you know, due due for uh, due for a fast. Yeah, I would I would rephrase I think, that. He he's long term yeah. long term optimistic. I think short term, I think he's feeling like there's uh, things have gotten a little frothy. I do find it interesting that he's so opinionated about crypto, and that it's like, man, if you were ever going to put anything in the too hard pile, like just put it in the too hard pile. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's he's put it in the rat poison pile, which um, which I find disappointing. But there's a lot of layers of understanding of technology below that. That um, and it's early enough that you know. I don't know. Maybe we're all wrong. Uh, <laughs> so for Naval, I think with a, with an American centric view would say like probably something, maybe something similar, long-term bullish, short-term uh, challenged globally, I think, and especially with like an internet focus, Naval seems increasingly to be kind of like looking at the world through maybe a little bit of a sovereign individual lens and like, let's stop talking about geopolitics as each specific country and start looking at it as like, almost internet factions that's like we're living increasingly online and increasingly borderless and it's like a global market but it's dividing itself in new ways and so the cultures are evolving rapidly in like different directions and in different ways which i find really really interesting but we're so early in it that it's hard to tell like where it's going to end one of the interesting things about investors and in the startup world is that it's you you almost can't do well in it without being optimistic like you miss the big wins unless you believe that almost impossible things can happen. And you're seeing world changing, or at least possibilities of world changing technologies and companies almost constantly. And so there's a lot of reasons to believe that, you know, various problems will get solved or improvements will come. So I, I think that probably comes with a little bit more fundamental optimism and maybe the ability to see a little bit farther into the future. But it's, you know, Munger has always bet on what won't change and Naval has been betting on what will change as you know, kind of a fundamental difference. I love that. That was a great way to, uh, to wrap that up. He's what's not going to change. And, uh, Naval is, is what is going to change. Yeah. As I, as I like still drink the Diet Coke, like, you know, <laughs> they're, they're both right. Uh, you know, I'm on zoom, but drinking a Diet Coke, like, I don't know, they're both winning. Yep. Okay, speaking of things that, that might change, and then I want to talk about uh, kind of online courses in the creator economy, but you've made one very successful book. It would be silly to maybe think maybe one day you wouldn't do a second. If you were to do a second, is there anything you would do differently this time around that you learned along the way? Uh, maybe the, the top one or two things uh, that you would do different? Yeah, I, I would love to do another one of these. I think um, I learned a lot about... How, I mean... Th- even knowing what the final product is, is such a 
such a benefit, right? Like there's a time when I was working on the development act that I didn't even know for sure that it was going to be a book. I was like, maybe this needs to live on the internet and be like a live updated paid access blog thing. And like, um, eventually my friend Trevor McHenry just kind of like slapped me. It was like, dude, it's a book. Like just, <laughs> just get back to work and make a book. I'm like, okay. 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 Um, so yeah, knowing, knowing what the final product looks like and, and even where the finish line is, is really helpful. You know, I definitely like went down some dead ends in the creative maze that like some amount of is unavoidable, but there are some that I will be able to, you know, skip the next time around. So yeah, and, and I'm, I'm being a, when I showed the first version of this to Brent, it was still like Brent, this is Brent B. Shore, really early and ugly. Um, and he was like, man, this is like, this is a cool book, but like you realize this is, this is an innovation beyond this particular instance of this book. Like the ability to transform things between medium is like a huge kind of value creation. And as I realized, like, you know, podcasting and tweeting and stuff for, for as much of our world as it takes up, like it's still a subculture and, and it doesn't have the sort of like evergreen global, like nature that a book does. Um, and you can, you know, by, by taking all the value that's created in this like non-searchable ephemeral medium and turning it into this sort of permanent universally accessible, like super Lindy like vehicle, you can create a lot of value for a lot of people and bring new ideas to them that they may not have, have had otherwise. And I, you know, I find it really fun and rewarding to spend all this time with this material and to produce something like this. And yeah, I hope, I hope to kind of continue the march and uh, work with more people and on behalf of more people to transform, keep transforming these things and, and create some, uh, you know, like, the real test of this is will be are people still reading this book and excited about it in in 10 years or in 20 years you know if this is a flash in a pan it'll be better than failing outright but not by a lot if this is still like relevant in 10 or 20 years i'll consider it a great success if it's irrelevant in 100 years i'll be blown away and i think continuing to kind of synthesize ideas that great thinkers and, and practitioners have produced and package them up into these time capsules that can get thrown forward into the future and help people become better and make better decisions and build better lives. Like that's, that's a wonderful way to spend life. That's incredible. Yeah. You said you won't know for 10 or 20 years if it's successful. So you, so you might make a few more of them. Like what, what, how do you know it's successful? Like as the days go by, is it how many people look at it? Like, how do you know it's successful right now? I mean, so if you would have asked me like on launch day, I would have said like, I'll tell you in a year if it's successful, if people are still are, are recommending it, right? So like that, the first barrier was like, do the people, do people like buy it and read it? And if they buy it and read it, do they recommend it? And I think we're now in the window where people are buying it and reading it and recommending it. And that cycle has, has kind of like proven itself out, I think. Um, and that is, you know, I'm, that is farther than a lot of books make it. So I'm, I'm very, very pleased with that so far. Like I think the next, the next test or the next gate is, is the long-term relevance factor and just seeing, you know, how, how long, um, it holds. And I worked pretty hard to make sure that everything that was in the final book is, is evergreen and is an idea that'll be useful in 10 years. And there were some hard edits 
that I cut out because they they were really, really interesting to me and they were really, really interesting in the moment, but they would have been less helpful to a reader 10 years in the future. And so those are posted on the website and those are, you know, still hopefully interesting to read. And some people may want to read them in 10 years, but um, it, it doesn't detract from this specific, you know, instance in this specific book and its ability to help a 30 year old today and a 20 year old and a 30 year old and a 40 year old in 10 years. You, I think you already answered the question, but when we, on our pre-call, you just said something that I made a note to write down, but you said, and I think you might have already answered it, but you said, everybody knows what to do with a book. What did you mean by that? Who doesn't know what to do with a book? Like you buy it or you download it or you gift it or, you know, you go to the bookstore um, and you, you crack it open and read it and you put it on a shelf and, um, you know, there are, there are readers and there are not readers, but there's nobody who hasn't doesn't know what to do with a book. On the one hand, it's stupidly obvious thing to say. On the other hand, like not everybody knows what to do with a podcast. Not everybody knows what to do with a video. If you send it to them, like it, it is a, it is a habit in more people's lives, I should say. And like, maybe that's changing in um, more drastically than I expect. And maybe it'll change more over like the total course of our lives over the next, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. But I mean, I, I had said this a little bit, but like, I think it makes it accessible to a lot more people um, just because this is such a, uni like a book is a technology and it's a pretty universally dispersed technology. And I'm going through this very interesting process of like translations and foreign rights now, and it's finding its way into like every language in every corner of the world. And there's this whole infrastructure built around like just translating and distributing and publishing and printing and shipping books. Um, because they've been around for so long and they're so they're so universal. I'll tell you what, I this is my personal opinion. I would much rather read a book than read like a Kindle or something. I, I love the feeling of the pages and just I don't know what it is, but I'll read a book before I'll read it kind of or especially reading it like at one pot one point five X speed. I my brain is not built that way. I listen to it at one <laughs> X speed. I want the full yep. deal. Um all right, now you're creating a course called Leverage. The creator economy is kind of starting to uh, become a thing. So did Leverage spin out of what you did with Naval, who talks a lot about Leverage? Yeah, more, more or less. I mean, like the there's a whole chapter in this book about, about Leverage. And, you know, Naval certainly didn't invent levers or the idea of them, but he did, I think, maybe more eloquently than than I've ever read anywhere else, like give us a definition and uh, or the beginning of a categorization and, and show leverages place in the playbook of like, of building wealth. And probably the number one question I get from people who have read the book is where can I go learn more about leverage? Um, I understand this idea is important, but I feel like that should be a whole book unto itself. And I, I want to apply this idea in my life and I want to practice it and I want to learn more, but I don't know where to go. And so I, I felt the same way as I was building it, right? I was like scrounging for more kind of pieces of, of uh, information about it. And, you know, that chapter is pretty robust because I worked hard to make it as thorough as I could based on what Naval had said. But it, it was, there's, I sense that there's so much more to explore. Um, and so Naval kind of like opened that door and, you know, put a label over it. But I'm trying now in my work to go through it and sort of, map out what's in there and show people all of the different types and the playbooks and the frameworks and the mindset and examples and 
that has taken the form of a course currently. And it, it, I've met some really wonderful people in it so far. Um, and my partner, Justin Michele, is like really helping structure it in a way that's accessible to everyone. And um, he's a really, really gifted communicator. Talk about him for a bit. Because in our pre-call, you were, I mean, you spoke a lot about how uh, highly you thought of him and his skills. So maybe from the perspective of like why it's important to have him in building a course and what he's helping you do that you would have like not done on your own. Yeah, yeah. So Justin, um, I mean, he's one, he's just a really smart guy. Like he was a, worked on a nuclear sub in the Navy and then he was a speechwriter for like General Mattis and General Petraeus. And so he's like, has these skills of just like clear thinking, clear structure, clear communication. Um, and he's been, he has a great Twitter account. He's been synthesizing the tweets and the ideas of other creators and um, writers and publishers. And then he actually worked with Jack Butcher on on his course as well. So he had this kind of gift of like this, this inherent skill set and then this interest in this world and previous experience with courses. And so when I started uh, working on this and talking about this project, he reached out. I was like, hey, like, love what you're doing. Love the book. Let me know if I can be helpful. And it's really so, it is so valuable for me to have a partner that I can like, you know, especially as I'm trying to develop these ideas and build them. And so they're not like crystal, crystal clear to me yet. And so sometimes help having somebody like ask hard questions and just point out either inconsistencies or points of confusion or examples that need proof or need stories or need resources or need links, like all of those things like force me to be better and to figure out how to structure this idea, not just for myself, but also for like a newcomer to this idea and bring people along from basics into, into the more advanced ideas and then into like application itself. Um, cause if we're not, you know, if all we're doing is like giving you information, like then it's just a fancy book in a course that's very expensive. Um, like if we can get you, like if we can instill, like incept this idea into your brain deep enough that it starts changing your decisions and changing your behavior and create a structure that with, with a little accountability, um, and practice, like you start making different decisions and actually applying these ideas. Um, then we've created something like really, really valuable. And I think that's the bar for, for a course these days. Can you give an example of maybe one way that you thought you were going to do it? And then he was like, no, this is, you need to do it this way, or you need to add a story to it or a visual or just something that wasn't obvious to you that was obvious to him? I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, there's a hundred small examples, I think. Like, um, the first two, the two first things that just like smacked me in the face the first time we talked, <laughs> like, I thought is, is sort of the, like the story of the book where like I kept thinking that I was done and then I would like come back to it and be like, oh, I'm not even close. <laughs> like, I'd, um, the two first things that he was like, you need like an orientation. Like, you can't just drop people like halfway into chapter one. And it, in, in my attempts to always like, reduce fluff. I just got so I'm like, okay, thanks for coming. Here's, here's, here's the stuff. Like, let me just start talking to you and like, give you the goods, like right, right, right away. And he's like, you got to like set expectations, like set, say, welcome, show people around. And the other, and probably even much more valuable is just the, the idea that like, it is also our responsibility to help people identify and work their way through their unique psychological challenges around these ideas. So it's not enough to say like, here's what you need to do. You also have to go through and say like, if you find yourself unable to do this, it may be because you have this inherent like value or fear or challenge. And 
here's the maybe specific set of words or practice or you know framework that is like the antidote to that so that you can actually break through from oh hey that's a good idea to i'm applying this idea because i have run out of excuses not to and and that's a very different and very hard thing so you got to put yourself in a lot of different people's shoes um and you got to be introspective about your own blockers and figure out like what did i have to work through or why am I still not applying this idea to its fullest? Like what's what's holding me back from some of these things too? Um, and some of those are uncomfortable things to go through, but I think that's part of why we're seeing, you know, such good feedback from from people so far. That's just like, you know, I actually am changing how I make decisions and how I prioritize my work um, as a result of this course. Yeah, I think even as it relates to Twitter, not that, you know, everybody's Twitter feed is like, sometimes I think I'm giving away a free course, not really, but I'm teaching things that I've learned where I get caught up is I'm like, everybody must know this, or I do things that I want to learn. And so, you know, a lot about leverage, but you're teaching a lot of people that don't know a lot about leverage. Do you get customer feedback? Or like, how do you know what to teach and not get kind of quote unquote writer's block for course making? Yeah. And there are definitely course creators who are you know, black belt lifetime masters of their craft and coming, you know, back to kind of bring beginners along. And like, that's not the case with me and this, you know, I'm, I feel like I was a little bit attuned to pick up leverage. Um, I think thanks in large part, actually, to like learning a lot about compounding through, through Munger and Buffett, because I think those are very similar ideas or at least share some similar traits, which we can go into those. But the other pieces that like, I'm learning alongside everybody. And so sometimes like I get asked a question that I, I haven't yet developed an answer to, but is a great question. And then like I go work through it and share that with everybody that I have just figured out. So like I'm maybe a few years ahead of of some people who are new to this idea because I've been building the book and learning it and you know, spend a year now kind of trying to reformulate and build frameworks around leverage. Um, but there are people who are who have intuited what leverage is and all of the different types of it. And they may not use that word, but they are masterful at applying it. And so now I really have this privilege of going to talk to all these people who have built incredible things and break down how they did it using this framework from the course that we've sort of built and developed. And I think it's, you know, it's helpful because it explains what has happened in the past. And you'd be like, they were like, well, I don't know. I just like, did what felt right or like that little thing worked. So I did a bigger version of it. And you're like, yeah, you felt that kind of the power of that lever, which we can then label like using our framework and show other people how and why that worked and then use it to explain what's happening now and help people predict and plan for the future. So it is a very useful thing. And to me, once you develop these, once you have the language to like see what people are doing and and label it and put it in buckets and understand it, you know, it starts to look a little bit more approachable and it starts to look a little bit more like something you can do. And you start filling in your kind of mental folder with examples and ideas of what other people have done. And so, you know, when you drive by a local business, you start to see like, oh, this is how they use tool leverage. And this is how they use people leverage. And this is how they use capital leverage. And this is how they use product leverage. And like, oh, they're actually like maybe missing an opportunity, like, to expand in this particular direction and like you start to fill up your you sort of build new stories and then that helps you triage your own challenges um because you you just have this like constant sort of flow of, of case studies and new ideas 
and really the course is just creating a common language for people to study this and apply it and use it. And we build these little study groups of like five to six people that get together monthly and talk about like what they're doing and the tactics that they're using and what they want to be held accountable to. And um, it's just really, it's nice to have that community and knowing that that's coming brings people along and helps them kind of bring their best and is another example of like filling up your head with those stories and those examples in ways that really do help you change behavior over like not too long of a time, actually a couple months. Do you, do you kind of pass the course? Like, is there a test or do you just kind of finish it and like people, you know, get varying degrees of how much it changed their life? No, I mean, I always hated the, the, the like school game. Um, and so I think like post school education is like, I don't maybe that's not fair. There are courses that people take for certification and there are courses that people just take for application. And like, this is an application course. And if you, you know, there's a 12 parts in the course right now, if you get what you need to out of the first four and like you go put that to work, good on you. That's great. Like if you're the person who wants to read every single word of every single lesson and like, that's what it takes to get you to actual application and change. Like, great. I'm so glad it's all there and actually structured the course as like, it goes through a semantic tree, right? So like we start with the tree trunk, which is like these really core ideas and the fundamental kind of roots below. And like pretty much everybody should want the trunk, which is like building up the mental model from the basic idea of a lever in physics, abstracting that slightly, showing it in different contexts, showing different examples of it, making it kind of tangible and showing what it feels like. And then the basic motion and frameworks of like, how do you make more leveraged decisions or how do you inventory the leverage that you have currently and plot your sort of next move on a media, on a short-term and a long-term sort of basis. If that's all you need from the course and like, that's enough for you to go run. Fantastic. If you want to go read through like examples and case studies around, you know, how you use tool leverage and product leverage and people leverage, but you're really, really good at allocating capital. So you just skip that whole section. Great. And everything at the end is kind of like much more choose your own adventure, right? Like those are the the twigs and berries of the semantic tree and like choose what you need to there. Like you don't have to go down every single route if like that whole thing is kind of known to you or not interesting. Um, if you want to go into more of the esoterics of like, how do you calculate this? Or how do I know whether I'm like super leveraged versus over leveraged? Because, you know, I, I really want to push it to the limit, but like, I don't want to get burned. Like that's a thing that we can talk about, but like most people aren't going to get that close or want to push that limit or, um, yeah. So there's, there's all kinds of stuff that, um, you know, you want to start with the most important thing. And then if people dip out at halfway, like my heart's not broken. If you got what you needed to out of it, great. No heartbreaks here. Okay. (laughs) I have, I was going through the course and I just saw three kind of things that just stood out to me that I just wanted to ask you about. Then I have a really loaded question on leverage, and then we'll uh, move to some fun personal ones. But I was going over the overview of the course. What is an aspirational hourly rate? Oh, yeah. that's um, So Naval talks about this in the book, but his approach is really just like pick an absurdly high hourly rate. And I've gotten a lot of questions about that from people because they're like, I understand that as a helpful mental tool, but like, I don't really know how to make decisions based off that because explicitly because it's absurd. And like, you know, if I'm getting paid $30 an hour, I can't 
rationally make decisions based on a thousand dollar an hour like opportunity cost rate. And so what I try to do in that lesson is actually like start with like hard reality right now. Like what are you earning for your average hour of work? What are you earning at your best? And then, you know, there's like some multipliers based on what type of work you're in, what type of opportunities you are, whether you're likely to be earning more in the future, you know, the, the very like highest value work that you've ever done and building that up in like a logical way to actually a variable hourly rate. There's like yours is probably much higher than mine. And mine is probably much higher than mine was when I was 20. And, but it, it is does provide a baseline for making decisions on like, do I invest in this tool? Do I invest in this particular sort of like task-based help? Do I, it's, it's really like time is the fundamental denominator of all of this leverage. You know, it's, it's not dollars at the very, at the very base level, it's time. Um, and you got to understand that relationship that you have at that moment between your dollars and your time and your leverage and figure out highest and best use and where you can, what's a good investment and what's not. So that's, that comes in early in the course and we just take people through and sort of then refer back to that later as you're trying to make decisions of, you know, does this $50 a month tool buy you back one hour a month or 10 hours a month, like, or a hundred hours a month. So those, those things become much more clear when you have something to refer back to. Love it. Uh, yeah, I remember Naval's deal and I think his hourly rate was like 5,000 an hour or something. The one thing I thought is it might be a good tool to handle uh, rejection. If you're trying to get in touch with the president of the United States and you can't get in touch with him, it might be easy just to go, look, his hourly rate's like a million bucks an hour. I'm not there. It's probably a good thing he's not answering me right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting, um, I hadn't thought too much about like assessing others, but it is, it is hopefully an empathy creator for like, you know, yeah, if you're trying to get Ashton Kutcher to like reply to your, your cold email, that's got a thousand words in it. Like <laughs> that's <laughs> better be a really good thousand words. What are self-imposed obstacles? Is that the loaded question? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> the, I'll give you, I'll, I'll let you, I'll tell you the loaded question now. I have two more. These were the self-imposed was on the course review, but I'll give you the loaded question now so you can think about it. Maybe it's not loaded to you, <laughs> but a lot of what we're hearing online today is, and, and especially like young kids are being told, you know, no longer use your name. You got to be anonymous. I listened to Balaji's interview with Tim Ferriss and he's like, we're heading into anonymous world. When I think about building leverage, it's me. It's not the anonymous person. So the loaded question will be, how do you think about leverage in a world that's headed to maybe more anonymous or pseudo-anonymous? I think that's what it's called. But before we get there, what's a self-imposed obstacle? <laughs> Self, uh, I feel we, we nodded at these a little bit with um, kind of when I was answering about Justin, the like working through psychological challenges and self-imposed obstacles there's a lot of things that we can do that we feel like we shouldn't or, or aren't able to. Um, and I really, I was listening to your interview with, with Mitchell Baldridge, who, uh, who I really like. And, and I, I thought that was a great interview. And I think his answer to one of those, those later questions is like, I truly believe anybody can do anything that they want to. And I think kind of the Delta between that, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges in life, but self-imposed obstacles are, are pretty real. And once you start, um, 
they, they come up in leverage just because people tend to have these really huge goals and then start telling themselves why they can't achieve it. And when you have enough of those conversations, half of those reasons are really like they put that blocker there and it became, it became to them an explanation for why they hadn't accomplished something, not a, you know, they, they put it in front of them instead of like putting it behind them where they could very reasonably have put it. And I think Tim Ferriss has some good stuff around this, like the, um, the, the fear setting exercise and the, like, what's the worst that could happen. It, it is just so much easier psychologically to tell yourself why something is hard than to like tell yourself why it's easy and go do it. But that, that mindset is really the differentiator between, I think a lot of people like there's some people who are working very, very hard and not accomplishing what they want. And it's, you know, I think there's a lot of narrative challenges there that are, that are self-imposed. Maybe the most polarizing figure we know is like Elon Musk. It's hard to think of anything that he would say he couldn't do. Like he's not putting a lot of self-imposed obstacles in his way. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to look at, I don't know how old he is now, 40 or 50 year old Elon and see like, well, yeah, of course he thinks that because like he spent his whole life doing that. But that started early. I mean, when he was 12, he like built and sold a video game and like started to believe that he could do anything that he wanted to. And so he has a lot of proof to support that. But that I think that narrative came first. And whether you start when you're 10 or start when you're 30, like if you choose that narrative and really thoroughly evaluate the the reasons why you think you're not doing something that you really, really want to, you'll be surprised how few of them are, are real life obstacles. I guess the other side of that or the other maybe the other prescription is like, it's okay to not want that thing, right? Like it's easier to not want it than to want it and tell yourself why you can't have it. Like you'll end up happier if you just say like, I don't care about having that thing than have all these desires and all these self-imposed obstacles that like make you feel psychologically smaller and worse and farther from your ideal self. Like just give up on having those things and choose one thing that you actually really want enough to overcome those obstacles and get rid of the self-imposed ones. All right, you're lucky because you already actually answered the third one, which was what is a study group? Um, oh, great. We, we already <laughs> talked about it. So now the loaded question, but I think you get where I was going with it is like a lot of building leverage in today's world is being done online. Like you said, Naval said we're all more of an internet community, but a lot of the narrative, and it's not really happening quite yet, maybe to the scale, but I think if we did this five or 10 years from now, there's going to be a lot of pseudo-honest accounts. My buddy has a, a kid that didn't get into a certain college uh, because they went and looked at stuff they were posting on Facebook five years ago. How do you build leverage in a more pseudo Is it, Am I saying that right? Pseudonymous? Anonymous? Pseudonymous? Uh, Pseudonymous? Sure. I wasn't going to correct Texas. you either way. I'm from Texas. I'm an idiot. I'm from Texas. <laughs> uh, we, we get a free pass. But how do you think about it? Have you, have you thought about it at all? Yeah, it's a. Um, I think it's a really interesting. I don't know vision of the future. So, and there's a lot of. Um, I can kind of pull from a lot of different directions uh, for where I think this is going to go. The answer is that I think it's going to go like in all directions because there will be more pseudonymous people online, but also the value of being yourself is going to go up. I think so. Um, one kind of input to this idea is. Naval talks in the book about accountability as a sort of critical component for for building wealth and taking risks in your own name and the rewards that that come from that 
I think Tlaib, I mean, Tlaib has written a ton about like never socializing your risks, especially in pursuit of owning your own gains. Like you do not, there's, you do not deserve to enrich yourself if you socialize your risks. And that's a lot of what he rails against, um, about the banks and, and things like that. What's that mean? Um, it, meaning like banking CEOs, I believe like I, I'm not an expert in this, but like it, I'm, I'm doing a poor job of summarizing Talib's excellent job of summarizing something that he <laughs> understands very well. Um, so like the bank's, lost a bunch of money because they took risks. They, they made money while they were taking those risks and the CEOs like bonus themselves on, on like as a result of taking that risk. And then they got burned because of that risk that they have already enriched themselves from. And then they got bailed out by all of us collectively. So like we all paid the price for risk that they took and benefited from. And that is like, that is despicable behavior. Like, socially um and we all like hate that that happened like entrepreneurs take on their own risk right like if they go start a business and they fail they lose the money they lose the the you know maybe um credibility or respect or in their you know offering a personal guarantee on their commercial lease like that's a risk that they take so that when they win like we all know that they took that risk and they deserve the reward that came with it. Um, and so that's an important piece of accountability. Like you and I are both here under our own names. People know who we are. We're willing to, you know, show up as our authentic selves and have this, like take the accountability for the words that come out of our mouths, right? Yeah. <laughs> like on tape, like that's not a thing everybody would do, frankly. Um, and, but there's, there's a benefit to that. Um, and you have to be willing to take that risk to, to, earn those benefits. Um, so that's an accountability piece. I think on the, on the pseudonymous side, like I follow a lot of pseudonymous accounts and there are, especially in the crypto world. Um, I mean, there's pseudonymous people at the head of like billion dollar treasuries and like, you just don't know who they are. They still have credibility because they have built, they have like, you know, proof of work or proof of contribution under their pseudonyms. Um, and so whether it's, a real person in like with a name and a face and a social security number who a bunch of people went to high school with is important at a community level. And I think like genetically appeals to us. Um, if you just looked at all that as like a math equation of credibility and like, you know, accountability and risk and reward, then there's no reason you can't replace that name and face with a pseudonym, um, especially online. I, I think there are like, trade-offs going both ways. Um, but I think uh, the, there's an interesting sort of like game theory here where like in theory, someone who is a total whale in the cryptocurrency space is like very, very at risk if their real world name and location are known because they're very vulnerable to, you know, physical coercion or attacks or kidnapping or whatever. But if nobody knows who they are or where they are or what their real name is or anything, then like, all of a sudden they're actually quite safe on an information like strategy level, if not a physical strategy level. Um, and they, you know, may save millions in security and safety and bodyguards and private islands and henchmen and all kinds of other like bond villainy, cool stuff. Um, just because they have been very careful about only ever contributing under a pseudonym. Um, 
and you know, there's a lot of interesting like social aspects of that. Like I'm already hiring people online on Fiverr or Upwork or whatever that I don't know if they're real people or not. I just know that they have a lot of good reviews and like proof of work and then trust that marketplace to sort of filter up quality. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, interesting kind of social dynamics that come when people can basically choose all their own avatars. And like, for those of us who live primarily in a like, digital internet world like an oasis type thing which like twitter's like kind of on the verge of uh twitter could totally be an oasis level thing where everyone's just like making up their own thing and there's people living entirely online lives um and there's you know people doing business very like handshakes and lunch and i expect that the extremes on both version think the other extreme is crazy um and i just kind of look at the middle and i'm like i don't know man both systems seem to work uh we'll see how they overlap and converge but like there's a reason why we came from where we came from. And I think there's a reason why we're going where we're going, but I, I, I don't think everybody's going to be doing business under a pseudonym in the next 20 years or anything like that. Um, but it is a new and emerging thing. That's really cool. And Bology's idea about how you can like blindly transfer credits between like old pseudonyms and new pseudonyms. Like that's all uh, super interesting. And um, I don't know, he's usually the first to be talking about some of these things. And like, I can hardly imagine the social change catching up with that for another 50 years, maybe. But um, sometimes it happens faster than we think. It's a it's an interesting, interesting world. He said something about COVID like last January. And I was like, this guy's mm. full of shit. And then two months later, here we are. Uh. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going. Uh, yeah, his. He's got a lot uh, right over. I mean, he was talking about Bitcoin a lot in like 2013, 14 and calling a lot of use cases and stuff that are just emerging now, like almost 10 years later. So um, I'm a big fan of his. He's kind of, to me, the emerging next Naval, you know, from my little seat in Fort Worth. It's kind of interesting to watch him. Okay, one more just thought there and then we'll, we'll move to some fun personal questions and be done. But you were talking about the crypto whale. I'm assuming like the Warren Buffett of the world, who's it's very obvious he has a hundred billion. What what you were saying is, but he's probably has to have bodyguards and do all these things in his life to kind of live a normal life. Whereas the crypto whale that can say pseudonymous just gets to, you know, live his life and no bodyguards or anything. But is he lacking the type of leverage that Warren Buffett has where he can pick up the phone and move mountains and the Sioux, I, I, I keep embarrassed how I'm pronouncing this, but the, the other <laughs> whale can't just pick up the phone and move a mountain. He might have capital leverage, but he doesn't have relationship leverage or does he? I think he does. I think like there are certainly pseudonymous account. I think, um, I mean, this is, you know, this is not Warren Buffett, um, but uh, like, Scoopy Tuples, I think, is the handle that started like Alchemix. Um, and like, that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he could, I, I can imagine a version where, like, you know, I mean, there's treasuries with billions of dollars in it, and these companies will get very big very fast. I don't know if the, the founders of, I think Uniswap is like, I mean, certainly one of the biggest DeFi projects. I don't know if those founders are real name, like, kind of known or pseudonymous, but like, they could certainly show up in a discord channel and have the very same or, or a, certainly a like mega impact on many markets based on what they say, kind of in the same way that, that Buffett does, um, you know, whether they can have a transaction on good faith with a government is like probably a totally different question. Um, but 
no, I think I think we'll see very powerful pseudonyms um, increasingly. And I mean, there's like this is interesting. I, I'm going to go find like what is the biggest following? What is the most followed, not known real person? Like maybe on Twitter, what's the biggest Twitter account with um, who's not a real person that we know? I mean, we're starting to see like basically totally like ginned up digital influencers right um i can't remember the name off the top of my head but like that that line is blurring a lot um yeah it'll be very interesting the first one i ever came across when i used to be on instagram was the f jerry dude fuck jerry oh yeah Uh, yeah i remember thinking like this dude has like two million followers and this was back early days but nobody knows who he is he's really funny and I just remember thinking, man, he puts a lot of work in to have all these great followers and it, nobody will ever know who he is. And now, like you said, I mean, we could probably wrap, rattle off a couple right now, but there's a lot on Twitter that are gaining a lot of momentum. Yeah. I mean, like they have, um, they have ability to be much more extreme than like real people can. And so they can like grow really quickly um, or, or for other reasons, right? Like maybe they just kind of slice up their personality and only put part of it out there. Maybe they have a family that they just, you know, they expect this account to get really big and they don't want things to be weird for their family. I mean, like a lot of Shane Parrish started his started Farnham street anonymously. And for a few years, like that was a, that was a well-kept secret. I don't think anybody knew for a little while. Yeah. I, I can totally see that, uh, that continuing and it'll be easier and easier to go like more like deeper and deeper. Uh, I think, I think the decentralization and the cryptocurrency world and tooling are going to make it, easier to stay anonymous for deeper because you kind of like sure it's like somebody at twitter's got to know who you are or like has a phone number who's attached to something but like i mean the fact that satoshi nakamoto is still not known and like made no mistakes in that were discoverable um is absolutely wild like if you if you told somebody 10 years ago that that was going to happen like i think people wouldn't have believed you you know especially after like uh ross ulbricht and like there's there's the underground economy it runs on this these synonymous accounts we don't have to go down this rabbit hole but you know some i read something the other day on twitter it was like how's twitter really going to monetize and it's uh when they decide when they get hat or when somebody decides that they're going to start holding all these anonymous accounts ransom um (laughs) saying pay me or or we're giving up your coordinates it's crazy it's crazy at first glance but it's not totally crazy not that somebody maybe internal at Twitter does it, but that people get hacked. And like you said, the the anonymous accounts make a lot more momentum often because they can say things that probably everybody wishes they could say or wants to say, but they can't because the media is not going to like that. So I don't know. It's really interesting. Um, and Balaji, again, not go back to him, but he talked about it in Tim Ferriss's deal when the cloud bursts. That was maybe the scariest thing I've like heard in a moment where I had chill go down my spine. Uh, of the cloud bursting. Um, we don't have to go into it here, but that was anybody listening, go listen to it. It's it's interesting concept and doesn't seem crazy. It doesn't seem like it couldn't happen. Yep. Yeah, not my area of expertise, but uh, mind-blowing. And we'll just like give you stress dreams. So I welcome <laughs> you to go. <laughs> go check that. Go check that out for sure. <laughs> All right, some positive stuff and then we'll bring it home. What is one thing that you believe in that most people don't believe? Hmm. Um, th- this idea comes from Naval, but I think it's 
super underrated and most people like even if they agree with it definitely don't believe it on a daily basis that almost everything is determined by your perception and that you the and that that perception is in your control to change do you have a morning routine do i have what a morning routine no do you have any I mean, routine you wake up <laughs> brush my teeth yeah um no nothing there's no secret sauce there i think um i love getting to the gym doesn't always happen first thing depends on the day all right as someone who's been a massive seeker of wisdom you've written a book what's the best book you've read outside of you know kind of what we've discussed today yeah i i love the systems bible um i think that you know, it's a pretty short list of books that, uh, like I said, like makes you feel like you can see the matrix of the universe and like see through walls that you couldn't see before. Um, the systems Bible was one of those for me. Um, it's maybe a little bit of an acquired taste, but like it's written in like this kind of mock dry technical fashion. And I think it kind of contains like, I think it contains deep truth about the universe and presents it in a hilarious way. I I literally giggle as I read that book still, even though I've read it multiple times. Uh, it's definitely not for everybody, but uh, probably if you're in this audience and this sounds even half interesting to you and you haven't picked it up before, like go check out the Systems Bible. Yep, I will. All right, how can people reach you, find the book, find the course? This is your chance to uh, to give it all out so people can come find you. Oh, sure. Um, so the book is available for free on Navalmanac.com. You can download all the digital versions there, the PDF, um, Kindle version. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon if you want a, a physical copy or Kindle. Um, audiobooks on my podcast, or you can get it through Audible. Uh, I spend like almost all my time on Twitter. So uh, I'm just at Eric Jorgensen. My personal site's ejorgensen.com. That, that's got uh, info about the course and a bunch of random blog posts about stuff like this that we've talked about for the last hour. Yep. All right, man. Thank you so much uh, for your time today. This was great. Thank you. Yeah, this is, this is a good time. Hey everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again. And I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.